Wiki Freaks. Wiki Freaks. Yeah, it's Wiki Freaks. Hello. 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 Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast, Wiki Freaks. That's it. We're your hosts. We're your hosts. I'm Connor Cregan. <laughs> and I'm Jill Wiener. Uh, Jill, the Jillist Wiener. That's right. Very Jill. Um, Do you ever say on dating apps, you want a Netflix and Jill? I don't, but maybe I should. You should. I just put it, it out be, there. You know, do you want an HBO and Jill or whatever, you know? Right. Yeah. Because let's face it, Netflix, Netflix has like just a bunch of garbage on it now. It's like Netflix worst. is a lot to garbage. They have. Well, I tried watching The Staircase. Oh, yeah. I don't, you know, I've heard that story so many times, like, right? in, in, like, true crime podcasts. I'm like, it was one woman who died. Like, can we move on? Why does it keep, why does it, like, <laughs> like, why won't it leave us alone? I don't know. I guess, I think it's because of the owl attack. I think that's why people are into it. Because owl they're like. <laughs> Is yeah. that what really happened? Owl? No, he pushed her down the stairs, I think. Oh, fierce. Okay. Yeah. Um. Anyway, uh, well, uh, <laughs> anyway, welcome to our podcast. Yeah. Um, this is our 123rd episode, if you can believe it. Oh my God. I know. And uh, so how this works, you know how this works. We read the Wikipedia featured article of the day on whatever day we happen to be recording. And we just kind of go through it and we learn and then get bored and do accents. <laughs> and Since it's our 123rd episode, Jill, should we like shake it up and do it in Portuguese? Uh, sure. <laughs> oh, shit, you call my bluff. Uh, <laughs> I'm just trying to yes and you, Connor. Yeah, I really didn't think that one through. I'm still a little foggy. Last night, listeners, we went out to karaoke. We did. We sang a lot, we sang a lot of songs. I'm surprised that either of us have voices. But it's I know. Well, it's because we're skilled singers. I think that's we was, know how to protect our instruments. So. Exactly. And I was doing warm-ups all day, so I was ready. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Very fun. Well, shall we? Let's. All right. I okay. believe you started last time, so I think it's All my right. my turn to kick her off. So from today's featured article, we have The Four Freedoms is a series oh. of four 1943 oil paintings by American artist Norman Rockwell. Oh. The paintings, Freedom of Speech, Freedom of Worship, Freedom for, from Want, and Freedom from Fear, refer to Franklin Delano Roosevelt's January 1941 for Freedom State of the Union Address in which he identified essential human rights that should be universally protected, a theme that be- a theme which became part of the United Nations Charter. Charter. <laughs> Charter. <laughs> um, all right. So let's see. Oh. <laughs> um, the paintings were reproduced in the Saturday, Saturday Evening Post alongside essays by prominent thinkers of the day. Hmm. They became the highlight of a year-long touring exhibition to promote war bonds sold to support the American war effort, which raised over $132 million. That's a lot. The paintings, now in Norman Norman Rockwell Museum, are his best-known works, but critical review has not been entirely positive. Freedom from Want became emblematic of what is now known as the Uh, Norman Rockwell Thanksgiving, where we all know this one. Yeah. Um, with the family at a table as turkey is served. 
Norman Rockwell is one of those kind of interesting artists, I feel like, where his work is like so recognizable and he's like mm-hmm. so known by name, but he's not like I feel like you're not gonna you're not gonna like see a retrospective of him at MoMA. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Well, because it became so like um part of pop culture, I feel like in a way, yeah. you know, like it became so part of like this is the ideal American image. You know, I feel like it's kind right. of capitalized on in right. that way. Right. They became more like like yeah like they just became these like recognizable symbols as opposed right. to like, works of art yes um, that yeah. is interesting yeah uh wait i want to see these paintings all right should we go to the uh or freedom. freedoms let's dive right in oh yeah i know the guy standing up freedom of speech the thanksgiving one that's a classic yeah Freedom from fear, I haven't is, really Is that, what are this, it's freedom from fear. Oh, because these bombings. Okay, so it's a guy, it's a family tucking in two children oh. while the man is holding a newspaper about bombings. Right. And everything's going to be okay. Don't worry, children. Don't worry, little <laughs> white babies of mine. <laughs> Everything will be just fine. Everything. The praying one is kind of freaky. The what? The praying one is a bit much. Yes. Freedom of worship. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, shall I read this? Sure. Okay. So The Four Freedoms is a series of four oil paintings made in 1943 by the American artist Norman Rockwell. The paintings, Freedom of Speech, Freedom of Worship, Freedom from Lawn, Freedom from Fear, are each approximately 45 and three quarters by 35 and a half inches. Oh, okay. They're big. Yeah, they're kind of, it's a handsome size. Right? It's like three feet by three to four. Yeah. So the four freedoms refer to President Franklin uh, D. Roosevelt's January 1941 uh, State of the Union, blah, blah, blah. The theme was incorporated into the Atlantic Charter and became part of the charter for the UN. Uh, The paintings were reproduced in the Saturday Evening Post for over four consecutive weeks in 1943, uh, alongside essays. Okay, we kind of read all that. Yeah. Excuse me. Okay, so this series has been the cornerstone of retrospective art exhibits presenting the career of Rockwell, but well, there you have it, who was the most widely known and popular commercial artist mm-hmm. of the mid-20th century, but the series did not achieve critical acclaim. These are his best-known works, and by some accounts became the most widely distributed paintings. At one time, they were commonly displayed in post offices, schools, clubs, railroad stations, and a variety of public and semi-public buildings. Critical reviews of these images, like most of Rockwell's work, have not been entirely positive. <laughs> Rockwell's idyllic and nostalgic approach to regionalism made him a popular illustrator, but a lightly regarded fine artist during his lifetime. See? <clears throat> and the view is still today. <laughs> bless you. However, he has created an, in, an enduring niche in the social fabric with freedom from want, emblematic of what is now known as the Norman Rockwell Thanksgiving. Um... Yeah, if somebody was like, Norman Rockwell is my famous, my favorite artist, I'd be like, okay. I'd be like, that's weird. Yeah, that's, like, okay. okay, sure. Because it gonna... is very, I mean, it's like very like propaganda, you know what I mean? Like yeah. these, these four are at least, I mean, they're cool. Like they're obviously the work of a very skilled artist, yes. but it's yes. very like, I mean, I don't know. It's not very, it's not conjuring up a lot of like emotion for me. Yeah, they, they are, they're actually very emotionless. That's a, that's a very good point. Like there is kind of no emotion. Right. It feels just like, yeah. Right, 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 right. Like this is, 
Yeah, it is. It is very like propaganda e or like social images. You know? Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Should we read about Franklin Del- FDR's speech? Yeah, we could read about the speech or the man himself. Oh yeah, let's read about the man himself. Where is that? Rockwell, Warburg, well. <laughs> uh, the four freedoms refer to President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Sorry, what? Oh, you want to? Uh, F, let's do FDR. Is what you're That's saying. what I was thinking. Yeah. Oh yeah, let's do him. F, let's do him here in front of everybody. I'll sit on your lap. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I always think it's Delanor. I um, always. <laughs> this is my first time ever seeing it. Is he Italian? Um, I don't know. I think maybe Delano. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Oh, Frankie Delano. Frankie D. We got Frankie um, Delano, the, the, the Delanos and Staten Island. That's right. Um, okay, so uh, often referred to by his initials, FDR, was an American politician and attorney who served as 32nd president of the United States from 1933 until his death in 1945. As a member of the Democratic Party, he won a record four presidential elections and became a central figure in world events during the first half of the 20th century. Roosevelt, yeah, four, four elections. Amazing. So Rose- that's like 16 years. Oh, 16 yeah. years. Yeah. He did a good job, though, right? Yeah. I, guess we'll, I don't know. History remembers him kindly. Um, Roosevelt directed the federal government during most of the Great Depression, implementing his New Deal domestic agenda in response to the worst economic crisis in U.S. history. As a dominant leader of his party, he built the New Deal coalition, which defined modern liberalism in the United States throughout the middle third of the 20th century. His third and fourth terms were dominated by World War II, which ended shortly after he died in office. Born into the Roosevelt family in Hyde Park, New York, he graduated from both Groton School and Harvard College oh. and attended Columbia Law School, which he left after passing the bar exam to practice law in New York City. In 1905, he married his fifth cousin, once removed, Eleanor That's Roosevelt. Enough, That's right? fifth, I mean, I get, I guess. Yeah. So mean uh, about Eleanor. She's not ugly. I don't know why people are always like, she's hideous. She's yeah, Eleanor is... Oh, she's kind of pretty. Yeah, that's a nice photo. She just has a, she's distinctive. Yes. <laughs> they had six children, of whom five survived until adu- into adulthood. Wow. One, I know that's. I wonder what happened to that sixth. <laughs> what he won election to the New York State Senate in 1910, and then served as Assistant Secretary of the Navy under President Woodrow Wilson during World War One. Roosevelt was James M. Cox's running mate on the Democratic Party's 1920 national t- ticket. But Cox was defeated by Republican Warren G. Harding. In 1921, Roosevelt contracted uh, a paralytic illness believed at the time to be polio, and his legs became permanently paralyzed. While attempting to recover from his condition, Roosevelt founded a polio rehabilitation center in Warm Springs, Georgia. Although unable to walk unaided, Roosevelt returned to public office after his election as governor of New York in 1928. He served as governor from 1929 to 1933, promoting programs to combat the economic crisis besetting the United States. Love you. <laughs> uh, um, I actually think that Polio Rehabilitation Center in Warm Springs, I believe that um, house, if you hover over the link, is what is his little white house. Right. I think that's the, yeah, we've right. read about that before. Yeah. Um, 
Do you want to read the rest? Oh, yeah, I'll read some more here. Um, so in the 1932 presidential election, Roosevelt defeated Republican incumbent Herbert Hoover in one of the largest landslide victories in U.S. history. Herbert Hoover, man, he didn't really. Uh, yeah, he really didn't. Care do, for him. He didn't do a good job. Those Hoovervilles. The Hoovervilles. Um, uh, I'm, I'm also like, like it's people who were born in like the 19th century and then lived into the 20th. It's wild. It also, it's like Roosevelt was like 18 at the turn of the new millennia. Yeah. Like and then to, to see like the invention of like electricity and then planes and shit. Like what the fuck? Right? Like, yeah, it's just crazy. Yeah. Anyways. So in 1932, pres- oh yeah, blah, 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 blah. The Roosevelt presidency began in the midst of the Great Depression, and during the first 100 days of the 73rd U.S. Congress, he spearheaded unprecedented federal legislative productivity. Roosevelt called, called for the creation of programs designed to produce relief, recovery, and reform. Within his first year, he began implementing these policies through a series of executive orders and federal legislation collectively called the New Deal. Many New Deal programs provided relief to the unemployed, such as the National Recovery Administration and uh, sorry, I'm a little plugged up. Several New Deal programs and federal laws, such as the Agricultural Adjustment Act, provided relief to farmers. Roosevelt also instituted major regulatory reforms related to finance, communications, and labor. In addition to the economy, Roosevelt also sought to curtail the rising crime fueled by prohibition. After campaigning on a platform to repeal it, Roosevelt implemented the Beer Permit Act of 1933 and enforced the 21st Amendment. He loves tax- to party. Hey. <laughs> tax revenue collected from alcohol sales would go to the public works as part of the New Deal. See? Smart. Roosevelt frequently used radio to speak directly to the American people, giving 30, quote, fireside chat radio addresses during his presidency and became the first American president to be televised. The economy improved rapidly from 1933 to 1936, and Roosevelt won a landslide re-election in 1936. Despite the popularity of the New Deal, many within the U.S. Supreme Court maintained their conservative bent and frequently struck down the New Deal initiatives. God, well, nothing has changed. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> Following his re-election, Roosevelt sought to counter this by lobbying for the Judicial Procedure Procedures Reform Bill 1937, or the Court Packing Plan, which would have expanded the size of the Supreme Court. The bill was blocked by the newly formed bipartisan conservative coalition, which also sought to prevent new, gosh, I'm all stuffed, which also sought to prevent further New Deal legislation. As a result, the economy began to decline, which led to the recession of 1937 to 1938. Great job, guys. Yeah. Other major 1930s legislation and agencies implemented under Roosevelt include the Securities and Exchange Commission, the National Labor Relations Act, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, Social Security, and the Fair Labor Standards Act. Damn. Um, Okay. Okay. Roosevelt was reelected in 1940 for his third term, making him the only U.S. president to serve more than two terms. Now it's like, now two terms is it. Yeah, there's no, you can't. You can't. There was a, I think there was a, like a thing, uh, you know, what do they call that? <laughs> an, uh, amendment, an amendment where it's amendment. like, you, uh, like a, the president can only serve two terms. Cause I think, cause I remember it was because George Washington only did it twice. Right. And then everybody was like, what? 
Yeah. But I didn't know. Huh. Interesting. Anyways. Okay. By 1939, another world war was on the horizon, which prompted the U.S. to respond by passing a series of laws affirming neutrality and rejecting intervention. Despite this, President Roosevelt gave strong diplomatic and financial support to China, the U.K., and eventually the Soviet Union. Following the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, an event he called, quote, a day which will live in infamy. What a great line. Very good. See, I'm, you know. I know. Where's the, where's the theater? You know, yes, where's the power anymore? It's all Joe Biden being, or not just Joe Biden, but it's all like, we've got to come together. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't really want to. <laughs> uh, let's see. Roosevelt obtained a congressional declaration of war against Japan. On December 11th, Japan's allies, Nazi Germany and fascist Italy, declared war on the U.S. In response, the U.S. formally joined the allies and entered the European theater of war. Assisted by his top aide, Harry Hopkins, and with a very strong national support, he worked closely with British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, Soviet General Secretary Joseph Stalin, and Chinese Generalissimo Chiang, and implemented a Europe-first strategy, initiating the Lend-Lease program and making the defeat of Germany first a priority of uh, first a priority over that of Japan. His administration oversaw the construction of the Pentagon, huh. initiated the development of the world's first atomic bomb, Whoops. worked with other <laughs> allied leaders to lay the groundwork for the United Nations and other post-war institutions. It was under his wartime leadership that the U.S. became a superpower on the world stage. Wow. World War II, I know we try and avoid it. But it was a big deal. It really, uh, <laughs> it really it changed the course of history. Yeah, it really. Yeah, it really uh, did. Really set some things in motion that it, we are very yeah. much still. It hasn't even been 100 years. I know. It's wild. And there's still yeah. Nazis. <laughs> there are <crazy>. still Nazis. <laughs> Anyways. Roosevelt won re-election in the 1944 presidential election on his post-war recovery platform. His physical health began declining during the later war years, and less than three months into his fourth term, Roosevelt died on April 12, 1945. Vice President Harry S. Truman assumed office as president and oversaw the acceptance of surrender by the Axis powers. Since his death, several of Roosevelt's actions have come under substantial criticism, such as the relocation and internment of Japanese Americans in concentration camps. Yeah. that's bad bad. Uh, nevertheless he is consistently ranked by scholars political scientists and historians as one of the greatest presidents in American history yeah man I must be having some allergies or something yeah it just came upon you maybe it's the ghost of Roosevelt maybe I I don't know what it is but like my eyes are feeling puffy what the hell Probably not. I mean, I feel like it's not COVID because I feel like your eyes don't get puffy from COVID. Yeah, no, it's, it very much feels like there's something like... In the air? Yeah, but I can't imagine what. It's a dirty bomb or something. A dirty bomb? <laughs> a dirty bomb? Okay, right. so there's a lot There here. is a lot here. Um, okay, I'll choose three. Okay. Um, I could do... Uh, I could do Eleanor Roosevelt... Mm-hmm. I could do. There's one that I was like, ooh. Oh, I uh, I could do prohibition, mm. and I could do internment of Japanese Americans in concentration camps. Ooh. Um. 
I'm down for prohibition or internment camps. Okay, let's. You have to choose. Okay. Let's do. Oh, this is hard. Okay. Um, let's do. Let's do prohibition. 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 It is. And not to erase the very real history yes. of Japanese concentration camps in the United States. I just didn't feel like reading about it. I get it. It's sad. I'd much rather read about booze. <laughs> right? And like funny gangsters. <laughs> right. Okay. So uh, prohibition in the United States was a nationwide constitutional ban on the production, importation, transportation, and sale of alcoholic beverages from 1920 to 1933. God, 13 years. That's wild. Yeah, that is wild. Prohibitionists first attempted to end the trade in alcoholic drinks during the 19th century. Led by pietistic Protestants, they aimed to heal what they saw as an ill society beset by alcohol-related problems such as alcoholism, family violence, and saloon-based political corruption. (laughs) Saloon-based. That's how Um, I like my corruption. Same. Um, Many communities introduced alcohol bans in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and enforcement of these new prohibition laws became a topic of debate. Prohibition supporters called dries presented it as a battle for public morals and health. The movement was taken up by progressives in the prohibition, Democratic and Republican parties and gained a national grassroots base through the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Boy, what a fun act. Fun bunch they are. Yeah, I bet their meetings were just a hoot. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) After 1900, it was coordinated by the Anti-Saloon League, Opposition, <laughs> nerds. Opposition from the beer industry mobilized wet supporters from the wealthy Roman, Cl- Roman Catholic and German Lutheran. Hell yeah. yeah. The Catholics are like, you can't take our whiskey. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the influence of these groups receded from 1917 following the entry of the U.S. into the First World War against Germany. Well, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. The Germans were like, oh, sorry, like, never, never mind. mind. <laughs> we'll take a backseat. Yeah, the alcohol industry was curtailed by a succession of state legislatures and finally ended nationwide under the 18th Amendment of the United States Constitution, which was ratified in 1919. And it passed with a 68% supermajority in the House of Representatives and a 76% support in the Senate. God, nothing would pass like that today. Yeah. As well as a ratification by 46 out of 48 states. What was going on? Were people just getting fucking like, it crazy wasted <laughs> like <laughs> enabling legislation known as the Volstead Act set down rules for enforcing the federal ban and define the types of alcoholic beverages that were prohibited not all alcohol was banned for example religious use of wine was permitted private ownership and consumption of alcohol were not made illegal under federal law but locals but local laws were stricter in many areas some states banning possession outright that's interesting. Yeah. But how do you own it if you can't buy it? <laughs> you make it. We go to Europe. Yeah. Follow. Well, you, uh, get, you get in touch with some bootleggers, I think. There, there you go. Yeah. Following the ban, criminal gangs gained control of the beer and liquor supply in many cities. By the 1920s, a new opposition to prohibition emerged nation- nationwide. 
Critics attack the policy as causing crime, lowering local revenues and imposing rural, rural Protestant religious values huh. on urban America. <laughs> well, that sounds Your familiar. Small town, smooth, yeah. rain. <laughs> Blaze are so not they're, they're like, we're the real Americans in real God's country. It's like, fuck off. Yeah, right? It's like, yeah, you stay out there. Yeah. <laughs> stay out in the field, Jebediah, where you belong. Exactly. Um, Prohibition ended with the ratification of the 21st Amendment, which repealed the 18th Amendment on December 5th, 1933, though Prohibition continued in some states. To date, this is the only time in American history in which a constitutional amendment was passed for the purpose of repealing another. Hmm. Some Some research indicates that alcohol consumption declined substantially due to Prohibition. Rates of liver psoriasis, alcoholic psychosis, and infant mortality also declined. Prohibition's effect on rates of crime and violence is disputed. Despite this, it lost supporters every year. It was in action and lowered government tax revenue at a critical time for the Great Depression. Well, there you go. I love this poster, though. Every day will be Sunday when the town goes dry. (laughs) It's so true. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Where would you like to go from here? Man, uh, I think I want to go to religious use of wine. Okay. Like, okay. why? 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 Why wine? Why wine? Why wine? Okay, so, yes. So there's, so sacramental wine, communion wine, or altar wine is wine obtained from grapes and intended for use in celebration of the Eucharist, Ooh. also referred to as the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion, among other names. It is usually consumed after sacramental bread. Wow. Did you ever do this, Jill? Mm-hmm. We did do oh. Eucharist at my school every month. Every month. Yeah, I was at Episcopalian school. So. You all, oh, Episcopalians are fun. You yeah. can get married, right? Uh, the the priests can, and they allow women priests too. Slay. It's like Catholic light. Did everybody? Did everybody at the school like go to the auditorium and line up? No, we'd go to the chapel, and then oh. um, and then you would do it. Like if you didn't want to take communion, you wouldn't. But I always did because I was like, oh, it's like a little snack, and you get a little wine. That's what I thought. Yeah, I think I I've probably done the grape juice. Mm. I feel like they gave us wine when we were in school. That's badass. Yeah. I mean, it's sacramental wine. I mean, it's Jesus's blood. What do you want? <laughs> uh, I don't know why I would have done it because I would, went to a Methodist church and I don't think they do that, but yeah, whatever. Uh, wine was used in the earliest celebrations of the Lord's Supper. Paul the Apostle writes in 1 Corinthians ten sixteen, the chalice of benediction, <laughs> which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ and the bread which we break? Is it not the partaking of the body of the Lord? For we, being many, are one bread, one body, all that partake of one bread. Wow. It's kind of bizarre. Like, I never really thought about, like, the whole, like, kind of cannibal characteristic. Yeah, it's weird. It's like putting it's their like, body in your body. It's like, it's like, oh, he's so good. I want to just eat him up. Right. It's exactly <laughs> so in the early church both clergy and laity received the consecrated wine by drinking from the chalice after receiving a portion of the consecrated bread blah, 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 blah. so due to many factors including the difficulty of obtaining wine in northern europe countries where the climate was unsuitable for viticulture drinking from the chalice became largely restricted in the west to the celebrating priest oh damn okay. uh, while others received communion only in the form of bread this also reduced the symbolic importance of choosing wine of red color. Oh, huh. Isn't it so funny where it's like, 
It's like it has to be red because it's like blood. Right. Like drinking wine. <laughs> it's like so like it's like you could be like red. it's a symbol. It has to be very literal. Right, right. <laughs> um, Eastern churches in full communion with the Holy See continued to give the Eucharist to the faithful under both forms. The 20th century, especially after the Second Vatican Council, saw a return to more widespread sharing in the Eucharist under the forms of both bread and wine. In the Anglican Communion, of which the Church of England and the Episcopal Church of the United States are members, the use of wine is obligatory in the celebration of communion. However, a person receiving communion makes a valid communion even if they receive only in one kind, either just the bread or just the wine. For example, a sick person who can only take liquids makes a valid communion by receiving the wine. Like, who's keeping track? (laughs) Uh, in the, um, God, Jill, for one. Oh, sorry. <laughs> in the Eastern Orthodox Church, the clergy continued to receive the consecrated wine by drinking directly from the chalice. But in order to avoid the danger of accidentally spilling some of the blood, <gasps> the practice was developed of placing the consecrated body of Christ in the chalice and administering Holy Communion to the faithful under both species with a sacramental spoon. Oh, I feel like I've seen people dip before. I feel like some kids would dip. Dip, yeah. I feel like that, which I guess. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm, wine. I'm here for the wine. You know what I mean? Would they like wipe down the, the like yeah. cup so people wouldn't get cold sores? Um, I mean, in my school, they did. <laughs> There's like the priest would like hold a little you know, like folded napkin, but like oh, nice, yes. nice, like sacramental, I'm sure. like some, Sacramental napkin, sure. Yes, sure, sure. that was dressed with the blood and passion um, of Jesus. <laughs> of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Well, where do we go from here? Great question. Um, let's see. I am mm, consecrated. Let's see. Um, I just don't want to, I don't want to get too religious. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm trying to, what's the Holy See? That's very religious. Oh, how about viticulture? Oh, sure. Fun. I want to be a vintner. A vintner, like Kyle McLaughlin. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Actually, I did know that. What a turn. Okay. Um, Viticulture or wine growing is the cultivation and harvesting of grapes. It is a branch of the science of horticulture. While the native territory of Vitis, sorry, Vitis vinifera. Thank you, Jill. Yes. The common grapevine ranges from Western Europe to the Persian shores of the Caspian Sea. The vine has demonstrated high levels of of adaptability to new environments. Hence, viticulture can be found on every continent except Antarctica. Huh. That changes today. That's right. That's what we're going to be the first Britainers on Antarctica. They said it couldn't be done. (laughs) I proved them right uh, <laughs> let's see um have you ever been on like a wine tour jill i have yes i fun. have well it wasn't fun did you go to well, many different- i you know i say it's fun but it's not really it's like i just like there it's always the same thing you pull up and they're like let us tell you our story that's what i think i wouldn't i like i'm sure i would love the sights you know seeing all the vines seeing the facilities 
But that stuff, you always have to like go on a fucking tour. Yeah. And then they only give you like, and then it's like, you have to pay for each taste of wine, which is annoying. And then like, you, you just, you just stand there and drink it and somebody watches you. Right. And they're like, well, tell me what you taste. You're like, and you're like, oh, oh. it's fine. Yeah, I mean, I know. think there are some really nice like restaurants and stuff and, mm-hmm. you know, in vineyards, which is fun. But as far as an activity, it's not really something I long to do. You know? It doesn't seem very relaxing. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of have to be like, socially engaging you know right and like uh my yeah. dream vineyard would be like like kind of free roam and then if you talk to somebody who worked there they could like answer your questions you right. know although i will say i did do wine tasting in uh new zealand with my friend janelle when we went on a trip there and that was really fun because you cool. would just you would just go to like you just drive up to the vineyard and they'd be like oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know however new zealand people talk <laughs> Um, and then, you know, of course, then we're driving around New Zealand drunk and that was very fun. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> it was dangerous, but we made New it Zealand out. Is known for their, um, their white wines. That's right. Their, um, the Rieslings are very popular there and Sauvignon Blanc. Right. Yes. Is a Riesling, is a Riesling, um, I always, I can never, I always forget if it's very dry or very sweet. It's sweet. It's sweet, right. Okay. Sweet. Sauvignon Blanc is dry, I believe but don't quote me on that. I'm not a vintner. Uh, Shall I continue? Yeah. Okay. Duties of the viticulturist include monitoring and controlling pests and diseases, fertilizing, irrigation, canopy management, monitoring, monitoring fruit development and characteristics, deciding when to harvest and vine pruning during the winter months. Viticulturists are often immediately involved intimately involved with winemakers because vineyard management and the resulting grape grape characteristics provide the basis from which winemaking can begin. A great number of varieties are now approved in the European Union as trade grapes for wine growing and viticulture. Well, I'll be damned. There you have it. Amazing. I would like to stomp on some grapes. Oh, that remember that viral video of that woman? Iconic. Oh. The best. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that video was kind of like the World War II of internet videos. Agreed. You know? Yeah. Like, I think the world changed after that video. It really did. It was like, oh my God, we can watch people humiliate themselves. <laughs> like, yeah, it's like, whoa, people make weird noises when they hurt themselves. And it's yeah. really fun. It's really funny. <laughs> um, should we read a little bit about the history? Yeah, I was just noticing this. I think this is cool. Yeah. Sir, the earliest evidence of grapevine cultivation and winemaking dates back 8,000 years. Wow, that's a long time. The history of viticulture is closely related to the history of wine, mm-hmm. with evidence that humans cultivated wild grapes to make wine as far back as the Neolithic period. Holy shit. How many years ago uh, is the Neolithic? 12,000 yeah, 12, years ago is the Neolithic. Jesus. Cool. Uh, so evidence suggests that some of the earliest domestication of vitis vinifera occurred in the area of the modern countries Georgia and Armenia. Oh, I didn't know that. That's why Georgian wine is so good. That's right. Uh, the oldest known winery was discovered in the Areni One Cave in Vyotsor, Armenia. No oh. shit. Okay. I've never heard of Armenian wine, but now I would like to try it. I know. I want to try it too. I wonder what it tastes like. Old 
ancient grapes. Yeah, like a cave. That sounds so fierce. Mm, I love, I love us. I love like a minerally white wine. That's my favorite. Right. Mm. So dated to circa 4,100 BC, the site contained a wine press, fermentation vats, jars, and cups. Wow. Archaeologists also found vivinifera <laughs> vines. Commenting on the importance of the find, McGovern said, quote, the fact that winemaking was already so well developed in 4000 BC suggests that the technology probably goes back much earlier. Wow. There's also evidence of grape domestication in the Near East in the early Bronze Age, around 3200 BC. And, you know, I just have to say, I think this is amazing that people were like, it's so in our culture, in our nature to want to make wine. And then these nerds start prohibition. Like, right. <laughs> No, that's such, it's so true. Right? It's like, it makes prohibition feel like one of those like silly, like bad diets, you know? Yeah. Where it's like, oh, I'm just smoking a pack of cigarettes and drinking water. I'm losing tons of weight. Yeah. Or it just seems so like, like we've been doing this for a while and yeah. the human race is still. <laughs> still here. Still thriving. Right. <laughs> So evidence of ancient viticulture is provided by cuneiform sources, which is ancient writing on clay tablets, plant remains, historical geography, and archaeological excavations. The remnants of ancient wine jars have been used to determine the culture of wine consumption and cultivated grape species. In addition to winemaking, grapes have been grown for the production of raisins. <laughs> hey. How do you feel about raisins? Love them. Huh. I like them. Um, I know it's, uh, I know it's kind of a hot take. It is. I know what I expected, but people hate raisins. I hate raisins. I'll, I'll, a chocolate covered raisin. Yum. Ugh. Raisin in the cake. Love it. Raisin in ice cream. Why not? Well, that would Ooh, get kind of hard. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know about raisins and ice cream. Cereal, yogurt. Yum, yum, yum. I guess cereal. I guess they have their place. I just, as a snack, it's like, get it out of here. Yeah. On their own. It's very strange. I think in a in a dish, I don't mind a raisin. Interesting. Okay. Anyway. Um, so the earliest act of cultivation appears to have been the favoring of hermaphroditic members of the oh. species over the barren male vines and the female vines, which were dependent on a nearby male for pollination. Hmm. With the ability to pollinate itself, over time, the hermaphroditic vines were able to sire offspring that were consistently hermaphroditic. At the end of the 5th century BC, the Greek historian uh, Thuc Thucydides yeah. uh, wrote, quote, the people of the Mediterranean began to emerge from barbarism when they learned to cultivate <laughs> the olive and the vine. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? That's such like a, <laughs> I feel like that's such like a character, like a character from like a, I don't know, a movie. He's like the people of the, you know, like somebody's like, right. No, da, 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 da. It, is, it is very like mahogany library. Being yeah. Like, well, they were simply barbarians until they cultivated yeah. the olive and vine. Uh, so Thucydides was most likely referencing the time between 3000 BC and 2000 BC when viticulture emerged in force in Asia Minor, Greece, the Cyclades Islands, and the Aegean Sea. During this period, grape cultivation developed from an aspect of local consumption to an important component of international economies and trade. Wow. So interesting. Yeah. Very cool. Ancient. Ancient. Well, what do you think, Connor? Do we do it? Do you think that's enough? Do we do enough? 
<laughs> yeah, we did what? One, two, three, four, five articles. Yeah. We, we were really all over the place. That's great. Yeah, this was fun. We really, we kicked it off with Norman Rockwell. And then mm-hmm. we uh, went to FDR, Prohibition, Sacramento Wine, and Viticulture. Damn. A real glimpse into Just the like human, human evolution, I guess, <laughs> or whatever with alcohol. I don't know. <laughs> um, what'd you learn? Well, um, I think, again, I was just struck by the ancientness yeah. of uh, wine. Yeah. I mean, I think we always kind of I always kind of knew it was old, but just like thinking about like that people were fermenting wine when when they like like the wheel, like when was the wheel invented? <laughs> like, I, I'm sure it was obviously they're fermenting wine after the wheel was invented. But the fact that it is so ancient, 12,000 years ago, you know, at the most, that's right. wild to me. Right. And, and it makes sense too. Yeah. Well, it's, just, it's like if I saw grapes and I was in the Neolithic age, I'd also to like squeeze them and drink their juice. You right. Know? And then be like, oh, what? oh, this sat out for too long. But then you drink it and you're like, wait, this is kind of like, funny. Wait, I don't I like, I good. I don't, uh, yeah. And I think that, and then also just the idea that like, it's such an, you know, part of human existence to like, want to share a glass of wine and like want to relax with wine. You know, I think it's just very cool that that's part of our shared culture. If that makes sense. Yeah, I know. I do love, it is true. And it, it spans so, it just, it's so global. Right. You that know? it's like a very like universal, like we're yeah. making, like we want, want, cause you, I mean, wine is for a celebration, right? It's for, yeah, or like reverence. So I don't know. I think it's cool that it's like a community aspect. Yeah. I mean, hell, we even like, we made it Christ's blood for God's sake. Hello, for fuck's sake. We made it Jesus Christ's blood for fuck goddamn Christ. Really? What'd you learn? What did I learn? So we had the four freedoms, FDOA, prohibition. Sacramento wine viticulture. What did I learn? Um, I guess, like, like, kind of what hit me about like the Norman Rockwell thing was like, like how his art became pop culture mm-hmm. and how that's like, it's kind of like the reverse, or it was like kind of like pop art, I guess. Yeah. You know, but it was like unintentional and just how like how art and symbols like can just be reproduced and reproduced and reproduced to like to a point where there, there is no like emotion <laughs> right well and there's no like crit like it's no he got like just like for being such a talented painter like the critics were like meh <laughs> right right because there, there was no emotional life there it was right yeah, it's, it's and like i guess that kind of trying to connect that into like the communion and how that is like a symbol yeah and, you it's know, gotta be red yeah yeah <laughs> um but just but just how it's like kind of constantly reproducible and, it, and it's done all the time and whatnot yeah but yeah hot app hot app hot app we did it there was a lot you know we had some technical issues but we had, we worked it out and fought through it jill and i think you know i think i might have a little glass of wine tonight to celebrate too there's something to take the edge off (laughs) (laughs) i might have one right now why not oh why not it's wine o'clock okay oh my god yeah that is the real (laughs) 
<laughs> that's the real, that's the Norman Rockwell of wine culture is, right, is right. like a little, I love to drink. I love to use wine when I'm cooking and sometimes I put it in the food. It's that yeah. kind of. Oh my God. <laughs> tale as old as time. Yes. Connor, where can people find you? Well, people can find me on the streets of New York City <gasps> and online at Connor Cregan for my social media platforms and at connorcregan.com for videos and future shows. Love it. Um, you can find me. Oh, sorry. I was just diving right in. Do, don't do. Do it. Uh, you can find me at Jill underscore lives on Instagram, Twitter. JillLives.com is my website. Uh, also, Wiki Freaks. You can follow at Wiki Freaks on Instagram and Twitter. And I have a regular Thursday show at Basic Bar in Williamsburg at 8 p.m. If you ever want to swing on by and tell us how great you think our podcast is. <laughs> I'm going to come next week for the show. Oh, fun. It's going to be a good lineup. Oh, nice. And it's now that we're in the summer, baby. Now we're cooking. Can be outside. It's a lot of fun. Hopefully it won't rain, but we'll see. Anyway, uh, that's it, folks. Bye, freaks. Bye, freaks. Mwah.